Welcome to The Counter Offer. I am your host, Susanna Gray-Jones, recruitment strategist and owner of Chime Search. It is my belief that it's simply not worth being a mediocre recruiter. Recruiting is tough, and it is my mission to make sure that you get all the best tricks and use the daily rituals to be the highest earning billers to become exceptional recruiters. So tune in and learn the secrets that the elite don't want you to know. Welcome back to The Counter Offer. This is now season three. I am so excited by how much positive feedback that we are getting from this podcast. It started out as just something to serve me for my business, but I am so stoked that so many people are tuning in as we begin to get even more high profile guests. Now, this is really exciting. We have the utmost recruitment legend, Greg Savage, who is back Now, everyone in recruitment knows who he is, but if you don't, please do look him up because he has changed the way that I think about recruitment. He is an advisor to 16 recruitment companies. He's owned, founded, and scaled four successful recruitment businesses. He's an author of two books, The Savage Truth, which has sold over 10,000 copies, and also the latest one, The Savage Way, which I absolutely loved. I've just finished reading it. He is owner of a training academy called the Savage Recruitment Academy. And recently he has been named one of the top LinkedIn voices. He invests in startups all over the UK and Australia. Now, a small disclaimer. During this episode, I was suffering from the most nasty viral infection. I was on antibiotics, but I wasn't going to miss this episode. So apologies in advance for my husky voice. However, enjoy. Thank you so much, Greg, for coming back a year later to my podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming back on the counter offer. It's a pleasure. It's nice to see you and great to be back on your podcast. Thank you. And one thing I will say, a lot of the listeners might not know, it was my first ever podcast that I did and I got you on the first ever episode. I was so excited and being super nervous, the whole camera just broke down halfway through. So we're here today in a professional studio, which I'm really excited about. And I loved that episode. I often listen to it back. It's still the most listened to episode, which brings me to my second point. If anyone looks for Greg Savage these days on LinkedIn, he's disappeared. You've disappeared off LinkedIn. Yeah. Taking a break. I've got, I don't know, three or 400,000 LinkedIn followers and that's a privilege and it's taken me 20 years to build. But it feels like about 310,000 of them send me a question or a request for help every day. So given my nature, which has an evil side to it, but given the good side of my nature, I try to help them all. But the problem is that's almost a full-time job because you'll get really complicated questions about commission schemes, all that kind of stuff, which try to help. But uh, I sometimes switch my LinkedIn off because of that. Makes sense. Makes sense. And to be fair, you are I was saying to my husband, because we were carrying a baby Yoda to school with one of my little ones this morning, and I said, you know what, Greg Savage is the Yoda of recruitment. And so he was like, yeah, tell him that. And I was like, I don't know. He might not see that as a compliment. I don't know. (laughs) But uh, for all those Star Wars fans. (laughs) Well, I don't know about that, but I'll do my best to answer your questions today. So I was going to ask you, actually, and the good news is for all the listeners, Greg doesn't actually know what I'm going to ask him today. So it's pretty rogue, so we'll see where we go. But one of the things I was going to ask you, when you are getting all these questions on LinkedIn daily, 
what's the most common question that comes up from people that consistently gets asked from recruiters over the world? Well, there's two groups of people, broadly speaking. One is recruiters and the other is recruitment owners or managers. And the one that comes from recruiters is one that is impossible to answer because it is, Greg, can you please give me the one thing I need to do or be to better be a better recruiter? And of course, there is no one thing. It's like being a great footballer or a good parent. Like one thing, there is no one thing. It's a cocktail of things. So that, that then leads to a much more, but plus it's hard to answer that without diagnosing, for want of a better word, where that person is up to. It might be a six-month recruiter asking that question. It might be a 10-year recruiter asking that question. And of course, the answer would be very different. So um, it becomes a dialogue. And owners of recruitment companies will have a much more diverse range of questions, but it's usually to do with consultant productivity and managing people and leadership and different angles of that same question, really. And of course, you get everything. I get asked things like, what's the best tech to use? Or, and I don't know answers to that often. But when it comes to the management side or the ratios or the expectations, to be honest, I had written a lot of material on this. There's blogs, there's podcasts, there's two books. So often I do direct people to those, not to brush them off, but I've already done a lot of the work answering those questions. And that's one thing I will say for anyone listening to this, I've just finished reading The Savage Way, which is your latest book, which you released last year. And for me, I can honestly say, and this is literally my suck up moment of the episode, it probably make your writing probably makes me at least 50% more profit each year because you reignite that kind of belief and passion in what I'm doing, which despite being an old school recruiter of 15 years, you think I'd still have it in me, but it just gives me that refresh. So thank you for writing your writing. Your well, I'm, I'm really glad. I'm really glad. Actually, it's interesting. I, I When I launched that book, um, did a speaking tour around Australia and around the UK. And of course, I had it on holidays. And, but I did go to six cities in the UK and spoke to over a thousand recruiters and got a lot of really gratifying and, and generous feedback about the book and the book I gave. But a lot of it was actually along the lines of what you've just said, which was, wow, I didn't realize how battle-wearied I was and how maybe at some level burnt out I was. And, and it's important for us to feel good about our job. And honestly, that, that's one of the things that I do like to talk to recruiters about because we get so much negative feedback from LinkedIn. And even if you talk to somebody in the pub, oh, you're a recruiter and everyone's got 50 terrible recruiter stories. And, and we get some of them, some of the criticisms deserved, but the vast majority is not. And you, it's very difficult to be a really great recruiter unless you actually believe that what we do is a good thing and it is. And that we make a difference in people's lives. I know we make money and we try to do the deals and all of that, but it's also important to remember that it's valuable. And, and I think that was some feedback I got from a lot of people, which was, wow, we do a good thing. And it's a hard job. That's the other thing that I talk about quite a bit is that, and you will have read it in the book perhaps, I get frustrated when people say, in name things like, oh, recruitment, it's not rocket science. <laughs> well, it isn't That's rocket science. We're, yeah. we're, we're not building rockets, but it's an incredibly hard thing to do. It's, it's a lot of things in life are not rocket science. Writing a novel, no. writing a play, making 100 runs before lunch in a test bed. None of those things are rocket science, but you know, neither you nor I have ever done them because they're too hard. 
Yeah. So recruitment is a very difficult job to do. And if I often hear recruiters talking their own job down, and that needs to be changed because it's hard to feel, why would a client believe in you or a candidate if we didn't believe in ourselves? So we've got to start there. Yes. And you talk a lot about that starting with the self-belief, which I definitely want to talk about. And one thing I loved in the book actually was about the myths that you hear. When I was a sales manager, and I know you often say that being a billing sales manager is one of the hardest jobs out there in recruitment. One of the things that I used to get all those lies, oh, it's just an unlucky time and all of those types of things. And you, what I love about it is you eloquently go through all of those myths and you talk about why they're myths. Because sometimes I think what a lot of sales managers struggle with is not dealing with the the lies that people tell themselves, but it's coming up with a convincing argument to get rid of that lie for that person. But one main question that I wanted to ask you, and I, I bet you're getting asked this question all the time, and you have to have an answer for it every year. But 2024, we're still in January. What do you think 2024 holds for recruiters out there? The million dollar question. Well, so yeah. So making predictions about the future is a fool's game. <laughs> so I do it all the time, obviously. Look, I don't know what's going to happen to the market, but I'll, I will say, I don't think it matters what will happen to the market because it's how recruiters and recruitment leaders respond that is the differentiator. It's a lot of my metaphors are sporting ones. So I'll give you one. If, if, if you are playing a game of rugby and you go to the ground and it's a hot, sunny day and dry, and you go to the ground 12 Saturdays in a row, and those are the conditions, dry, hot, clear, and you develop your game plan accordingly. And then you turn up on the weekend, the 13th weekend, and it's raining. You don't not play. You change your tactics according to the environment. That metaphor is very apt when it comes to recruitment. In our industry, and I've been in it 45 years, so I feel as I've earned the right to criticize it because I'm part of it. And not a great hair on your head. Yeah, well, <laughs> must be a few. There, there's a tendency in our industry to talk a lot about the market. And in fact, we're world champions at it. But we don't react to the market well enough. And so, to answer your question, I think 20, look, 23, second half 23 was a lot tougher. We had two years of boom post-COVID. People worked hard and they did work hard. But if you've got a hard, suitable candidate in front of a client, you were going to get an off. I'm generalizing. People just had to get candidates in front of a client. Yes, it was hard to find candidates, all that stuff. A lot of people build more than they've ever done before. Then yeah. in 23, in the second half, started to tarpen up. It was harder. Now, what that has resulted, there's actually still a lot of jobs being built. There's a lot of hiring. It's just that clients have become more demanding in the job description. They're going slower, more thoroughly, candidates are more tentative. And that's the analogy about the rugby game. The market, the environment's changed. We have to change our tactics. So that is the big thing I would advise people to do. So for an example, specifically speaking, take better job orders, qualified job orders, advise clients. Don't, don't, I heard it today. I'm in a recruitment company. Sorry, I didn't hear it today. I heard it in this recruitment company late last year where a client Said to a recruiter, she's a financial recruiter. I was listening to her. He said, "What well, a hire this finance person, but we've changed things about work from home. We want everyone in the office five days a week. It's a great job, but it's five days a week. 
Now, an average recruiter would have gone, oh, okay, I'll do my best. She didn't. She said, and I'll try to quote her. She thought it by saying, Mr. Client, I could do that, but if we did that, you and I will be fishing in a very shallow talent pond. Let me explain. A lot of the best, and then she explained that a lot of the best candidates have choice and they want three days, three, two, or whatever it is. By the time she finished the phone, the client had reneged on that and she filled the job two weeks later. Now that is influence. It's credibility influencing skills. Now, there's a very important point about that. We've always had to have those skills. But you ask about 24. 24 is when we're going to see an impact and beyond of AI and automation on our industry. And what that means is that the parts of the job that machines can do better than people, machines will do. And recruiters have got to become expert at the parts of the job that only humans can do. And only a human could do what she did that day. She yeah. used her, she got, she told stories. She said, Mr. Carter, I had this, I had that client, and this is what my other client in your industry did. They were all true. They were very convincing. And, and she was authoritative and consultative. And, by the, and, and therefore, she made the job more fillable. That's what 24 holds. We've got yeah. to be much more consultative. And it's going to be hard for a lot of recruiters who are very good at making the match and doing the logistics. Those things are important, but they are things that mostly machines can do better than us. So that's where we're heading. The Counter Offer Podcast is proud to be sponsored by Soul Space Studio. Tap into your inner strength and create profound shifts in your physical, mental, and emotional well-being at work. Soul Space Studio Wellbeing Workshops can help reduce stress and create thriving cultures to deepen connections to help your team strengthen their resilience to improve their creative flow. To find out more, please check the podcast's show notes. I love that. So coming back to that influencing, and you've got a lot of new rookie sort of 20-something-year-olds coming into recruitment who might not have the self-belief and confidence to say to a client who's maybe got 30 years experience, actually, this is what the market's doing. Here's my recommendation based on the market. So how does a manager in that sense, who's managing a group of 20-something-year-olds who don't have that confidence, how does a manager then enable them to have those conversations? Can they? Like, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Well, they they can in time. If they're going to be good at recruiting, they can. Just remember, as I'm sure, you can remember you're a very young woman, so it's not that long ago for you. Your career's been, been a journey and the skills you have now are incomparable to the skills you had 15 years ago. And in recruitment, where everything's sped up, a one-year recruiter is, is infinitely more capable of giving advice than a three-month recruiter. So it's the journey. And people just need to talk to people about that journey, but they also need to help them develop their self-belief. And I say this to people all the time. The young recruiter, I say to her, how many, how long have you been in recruitment for? She says, nine months. I can't be giving a client advice. I said, okay, what's, what area do you specialize in? I, I specialize in legal support stuff. Okay. How many legal support staff and PAs and paralegals have you interviewed in your nine months? And she goes, oh, lots. I said, how many? And she goes, I- I'm not really sure. And I say, well, the first rule of recruitment is bluff. Give me a number. And she says, a <laughs> hundred. Okay. You have interviewed more paralegals than your clients have interviewed in their lives. They look at me, these consultants say, a hundred, you are, you, you feel as though you're a newbie and in many respects you are, but you've interviewed a 
100 candidates, and you've probably spoken to 300 more on the phone, salaries, temp rates, what their motivation is, what their attitude to work from home is, you already have valuable knowledge. And that's why we need to get leaders making sure that those recruiters don't default to hiding behind digital, which by the way, in the UK is probably world champions of that because it's a very transactional market. I don't mean that in, 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 uh, it's the same here, but it's a very transactional market and, and, and clients don't want to talk to recruiters and then recruiters default back to just email and the clients take no notice and you can't advise that way, but no credibility. And, yes. and, and, and then you can, you can see your advantage, right? Yeah, you can yeah. see your advantage. Even in that nine-month experience, you feel it. She has knowledge, and if she could advise a client, once you've done that once, it might be just on a small thing. Like Mr. Klein, I, I appreciate you. your last PA or whatever was paid thirty thousand pounds, and I'm suggesting thirty-five. But that's because the market's moved. Get some stories that builds that credibility. That builds that value, doesn't it? Uh, impl- yeah, absolutely. And if you go to chat GPT today and ask them what PAs or whatever are being paid in London, it cannot tell you. Yeah. Right? yeah. It cannot tell you because it's only got data to a year ago. That'll get quicker and more recent, of course. But it's the nuance, right? It's the nuance. It's what, like one of the big questions people ask me, and you haven't asked it directly, but you're, you're heading that way, is people say, what are owners of equipment companies thinking about this year? Are they positive? Are they going to fire? Are they optimistic? Now, you can't get that from AI because it doesn't know. Yeah, very How do I know? Well, I'm on the board of 16 recruitment companies, and, and I'm speaking to these people all the time. I'm not clever. I'm just in the right place. You just and, know and the blind me, spot. Well, I, I have, and I'm just one of, of, of many people. You could ask anyone who's a specialist in the field, they will have to date information, which is valuable. And that we've got to get better at in our industry. So much better at having a point of view, having a narrative, right? You, you're interviewing me because you think I've got something to say. Well, that remains to be seen. But clients and candidates want a, a valuable narrative from their advisor. Yeah. Just as if we, if we go to a, a real estate agent or a lawyer or a hairdresser, any one of those people knows more about their area of expertise than we do. And although we make the decision on what we allow them to provide us, if we trust them, we take their advice. And that's why we go back to them and pay a premium to people we trust. I totally agree. I'm going to tell you a secret. I'm going to be vulnerable here because I make this mistake. I was brought up very kind of English, respect your elders. And there's one quote in your book that really kind of got me. And this relates so well to what you just said. It said, if you are subservient or apologetic or lacking in confidence, the client automatically takes control and you will be lost, right? So I'll give you an example. Candidate is late for interview, right? I prepped them. I did everything I need to do. I am still that recruiter who will call client and say, I'm so sorry. I'm absolutely mortified. They are late and I completely appreciate it's wasting your time, right? So when I read your book, that really got me questioning have I got it right here? Am I almost sort of downplaying myself? Should I maybe be more approaching it in a kind of, I'm very frustrated with this candidate because it wasn't my fault. I did everything at my end. It was actually the candidate's fault. So would you say I was being subservient and apologizing on behalf of my candidate? I'm curious to know what you think. No, I think that is a very nuanced one, which I will answer your question. But just your broader point, having good manners, being polite, being respectful, 
is never about. And yes, the English are world champions in saying, oh, sorry, that's true. But that's absolutely fine. It's endearing and it's positive and it's respectful. But you can be polite, respectful, and still have a point of view. And you can push back on a client. I'm just talking about the generic thing and then I'll answer your scenario. We let ourselves down with tentative language, right? So for example, client says, what's your fee? And a recruiter says, well, normally it's 20%. Disaster. Normally. Why would you say normally? Yeah. Because that immediately says to the client, ah, oh, okay. Or the famous story I tell when I went on a client visit with a young recruiter. I was young myself, but she was younger. And, and she was going to run the meeting because that's what I used to do once I'd learned that it wasn't all about me. She was going to run the meeting. And the first thing she said to the client was, Mr. Quad, I'm sorry, we won't take up much of your time. And I said to her afterwards, I said, that's, as soon as you said that, we were lost. She said, what do you mean? I said, you can say thank you for your time. You can say, I appreciate your time. But don't say you're sorry for taking up your time because that demeans us. Our time is valuable, right? Yeah. And so you won't be arrogant or anything like that. But tone is important. Same to a client, normally our fee is 18%. He or she immediately thinks, well, not today. It's going to be 16 What do you need to say to the client? What I'll do to fill this job is A, B, C, and D. And we'll charge you 18% or whatever. And so all that can be done with manners, politeness, et cetera. I think in your particular case, you were kind of acting as a de facto to apologize for your candor. I think I would, first of all, if it, at all, every situation is different and we don't want to go down a rabbit war on this, but if, if you could understand why that candidate was late, that would impact how you would speak to your client. So if that candidate was legitimately late because her, her car broke down and then she jumped on a tube and then the tube was delayed, like a shit, then you would say, look, I'm really sorry, but it's good, really. If you didn't get that feeling from your candidate, you might bring your client inside the tenants and say, Mr. Client, I'm disappointed in the candidate. I don't think I'm going to work with her. But you need yeah. the knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really good point. But it's different to, it's different to, you were brought up, you said you were brought up in a certain way. And I don't think that you need to change any of that. It, the manners, the politeness, the deferential is, is, is fine. But just remember that the client relationship with a recruiter isn't a master servant relationship. It shouldn't be. It's a relationship of equals. Yes. Because they need us and we respect them. And over time, they will respect us, I promise you, if we can yeah. provide good advice. I love that. And I think it's great for any recruiter out there to almost go through their clients and sort of weigh up where the relationships do match that kind of equality. I love that. I work with quite a lot of different clients. So I work with some very sort of big clients who take on experienced recruiters. But I also work with the smaller clients. We've got about 10 to 20 staff and they have this constant dilemma. Do I take on rookies? where we can grow our own, as they say, or do I go through rec direct? And I'll, I'll be honest, there are a lot of mediocre rec directs out there who will just take experienced recruiters who six months, they have a new job every six months. And what happens is the client ends up spending a lot of money on fees and experienced people who are institutionalized to do it a different way. And the result is that the client sort of gets fed up and thinks, actually, I'm not going to take any more experienced recruiters. We're just going to grow our own. I know there's a better way. What do you think? If you were to start your own recruitment company again tomorrow and you wanted to grow quickly, you had about 20 staff, you wanted to get that to the next point, would you look at the rookies or would you look at the experienced recruiters? Look, this year, uh, I've been doing what you described for a long time. 
of built three improvement companies, each of them to over a hundred million in sales. Other people did most of the work. I'll have to say that quickly, but that is the fact. So to do that, that tire a lot of people. And I don't think there is an either or, it's not binary. I think you've got to look for both. Obviously, you can find an experienced recruiter who slides right in, right in, and fits your mold, your ethos, your values, and builds well, and all that, then that's what you should do. But that's chasing a pipe dream to a certain degree. Yep. So I think there's two things you do. You do look for experienced recruiters and you hire them into the key roles, particularly in the leadership roles, if you can find the right people. But you don't allow yourself to be seduced by the fact that the person has a long history in recruitment and make the assumption that because they have that, they are any good. You've got to dig very deep. And what we do a lot in our industry, I've done it and I won't do it anymore probably, is we're so keen to hire people who are in the markets running our way that once we see someone who's quite good, we spend a lot of time convincing ourselves that they're very good. Then we should go deeply, totally, because we want to make that hire. But actually, we should go the other way. And if we've got niggling doubts, dig into them. Why have they had three jobs in three years? That may not be the end of the world, but why are they even wanting to leave this company? Why is the company not looking after them if they're so good? Did they, they build 300,000, whatever it is, did they win that business or was it fed them? All those questions. But then over, over and above the skills questions is the culture fit. Are they going to bring negative traits to our business that don't fit who we are? I see a lot of people making the hire, even though they see the negative trait, but they make the hire because the person can build. That will be a disaster, I can tell you right. Money before culture. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I've made that mistake. Yeah, I've made it too, more times than I really want to admit. But, and that even comes back to, to, do you really have a culture or do you just have a culture written up on your website, but actually you're a dog's breakfast of all sorts of people doing their own thing. We say we're a team, but we're not a team. So you've got to ask that question. But then on the rookie side, well, again, you've got to do a lot of work to make sure that the person you are hiring who has no experience in recruitment has the core competencies which are most likely to lead to success. And, and I talk about them in the book, that, uh, that they are going to be the ability to develop influence and skills. They're going to be real resilience. Uh, they're going to be likability. They're going to be those sorts of things. Some evidence of sales, even if it's retail or something else, some evidence of dealing with yep. people in face-to-face situations. A combination of those things is much more likely to make And even do that, are they coachable? I know it sounds crazy. They're newbies. Coachability. A lot of people are not, they're not very coachable. Someone chastised me the other day for using that word. It's really old fashioned. You should use growth mindset. Yeah, growth mindset's hot at the moment. It's hot at the moment. I'm curious to know because all of these business owners, great intentions, want to find the hot recruiters of tomorrow, right? They've tried psychometric tests. They've tried competency-based. They do the role-play scenarios. Have you found any specific method of interviewing recruiters to be successful? Well, found a combination of things to be more successful in not using a combination of things. I haven't found some golden secrets. And that is really thorough interviewing, situational interviewing, where you dig into what people have actually done in certain situations. Yeah. Working hard not to try and convince yourself that they're suitable. Getting several people in the organization to interview them. Psychometric testing, this, this company now, they use it and they've developed a template of what 
they're highly successful people look like. And they do use it as one of the things you know, that disqualify people unless it's terrible, but they dig into things depending on what country you're in, detailed reference checking. Well, what I mean by that is so, different laws in different countries. But actually, obviously you've got to make the right time. But it's what you do with the people in the first three to six months that they join you that is going to be the key determining factor to success yeah, or not. Yeah. And and we're not good at that. So so every person you hire, you should hire with the intention of them succeeding. But if they're going to fail, they should fail fast. Let me just explain that. I'm not saying hire or buy. I'm saying really don't just hire people and then say, hey, Susanna, you're our most experienced recruiter. I'm going to sit Johnny next to you for two months and he'll audio magic will rub off on him. Well, it's bullshit. He's not going to rub off on him. Yeah. They, we we do that. pick up things from other people, but we need detailed training and you need constant feedback. And the three things you've got to look for with somebody in their first three months is, first of all, is their attitude drives. So, for example, it's going to sound old school, but it's not. Anyway, maybe it is, but you've got children and you're going to teach them to look both ways when they cross the road. And that's old school, still important. And so yeah. is this one I'm going to about to talk about. So you can say to a person, okay, Bob, this is your second week here. Tomorrow I'm setting aside now to train you on X, Y, Z. So we'll meet online or in this meeting room at three o'clock tomorrow. You turn up at three o'clock and they turn up at 10 past three. Now, there could be a million reasons. But what most people do is the person is new, I'll let it slide. Now you're teaching them that around here, we come late. Just as an example. Whereas the better thing to do is to sit and go and say, hey, we're starting at three. What happened? Oh, I got busy. And you're like, well, three's three. Yeah. Now, yeah. if you do that with somebody in the, if you do that with somebody in the first week, even if it's just 10 seconds of awkwardness, I promise you they are very unlikely to be late again. If they are, it's a sign that you might have a bigger issue. No, I'm not talking about timekeeping. I'm talking about collaboration and respect and everything else, right? So yeah. you check attitude. You check coachability. What you've got to understand in the first three months of having somebody joining your company as a rookie is can they learn? People yeah. learn at a different pace. But you've got to do that. You've got to check in. So, for example, you train somebody how to screen a candidate on the phone and you give them a lovely training session. Then a lot of companies have a passport and they've got a ticket to it. That person's trade. You don't know if they can do it. You've got to then role play it and give them a score out of 10 and say, okay, mate, not a bad. I give you three out of 10, but here's the feedback. We're going to do it tomorrow morning again. Oh, it's five out of 10. Well done. Slow but sure. We're going to do it tomorrow morning. Seven out of 10. Excellent. Monday morning, you're going to do it live with a real candidate. Yes. Nine out of 10. Then yeah, you know. Yeah. Or three out of 10, three out of 10, three out of 10, three out of 10. That's a problem. And yeah. that's what I meant when I said you've got to help them succeed by proper training, coaching, feedback, every opportunity. But the amount of times that managers have said to me, oh, Greg, we've had this person with us nine months, but I can't really let them not go because they're not really fully trained. And I'm like, are they going to make it? But I'm not sure yet. Nine months? No excuse. I keep yeah. thinking as you're speaking, yeah. it's progression, not perfection. And I think, yeah, a lot of the best recruiters out there suffer from impatience. Um, we just want the results fast. And sometimes you've got to kind of hold back and just really sort of go through that process of the training. And it is different for everyone, right? It, it, it's different. Well, well, it is. People learn at a different pace. And I think that's, you know, what you said there's, if, if I see improvement, then I'll persevere. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's when it flat lines and, and then you'll throw a lot of different, you don't just fire somebody, you'll check it from 10 different angles, but that will tell you early on whether that person is, it, well, normally they give it, but they can see them. And what you want is some people learn fast, some people learn fast on certain parts of it, but if they're coachable, the attitude's right. And then the third thing is, believe it or not, you should set the little measurable goals. Not in the first week, but you've got someone who's joined the temp desk, for example, eight weeks in, they're trained on interviewing, et cetera. And you might say, here's a list of a hundred temps. We've lost contact. Give them a call, find out what they're doing. Are they still temping? And see if they want to come back into the fold, so to speak. And then you'll say to that person, when do you think you can finish this by? Usually they say something like, oh, I'll do it in the next hour. You're like, no, <laughs> mate, it's going to take you longer. How, how about... Can you do it by Friday at five o'clock? Come back to me Friday at five o'clock and tell me how you've done. First thing is they don't come back Friday at five o'clock. That's a problem. You've got to act. Yeah. Second they thing set is- They that for themselves. They have to be accountable, right? Because they set They have that to be accountable. It, it, absolutely critical. Or, or they come back at five o'clock and say, I've done three out of a hundred. Obviously, you're going to dig into that and understand it, but that's the problem. Or come back to you on Thursday night and say, I'm finished. Have you got any more? That's good. So- that's the way to have this interactive feedback loop where people can see they're getting better. You can see their progress. You can gauge the pace of it. And usually that allows you to very quickly say, this person's a slow horse, but they're going forward. Well, this yeah. person's a fast horse and they're really getting it. Well, this person just doesn't seem to be getting it. And then you double down and give them more help, but it'll quickly expose if they were a wrong hire. Yeah. And the best companies that I work with are the ones that never have to fire. They've managed to be able to get the consultant or recruiter to think, actually, maybe this job isn't for me. And that is such an art. I think I, I really do see it through my kind of lens. You see, I, it breaks my heart, the amount of recruiters who leave the profession, who probably shouldn't leave the profession, but are with employees who don't nurture. They've got the right attitude. They just don't have that training. They have a sort of impatient employee who's like, come on now, Bill, why aren't you doing 100 calls a week? But they don't have that patience and that time. But then there's at the end of the scale, you have some recruiters who've been in it for like three, four years who are completely tired, don't really want to be in the role anymore. It's, yeah, yeah it, it, it's, it's tough. And I think the biggest thing, what I'm getting from what you're saying for business owners is to get the onboarding right, but also get the interview yeah. right and ignore that kind I of des desperation hiring, which we all get. Well, well Every time I've hired somebody with a niggle, it's come back to bite me, to be honest. Hey, um, yeah. One of the things I, I like to say when, when there's a group of us hiring somebody is, I will ask people in the hiring decision, if we hire this person, will they raise the average of people in our company? And, Ooh, and they like say, that. what do you mean? So, 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 so if we hire this person, are we going to be a tiny bit better as a company or a tiny bit shitter? Yeah. And that's yeah. a bloody good question. So in what sorts of things? doesn't matter if they're rookie or experienced. Energy, ethics, values, collaboration, coachability, skill, insights, but whatever it is, are they raising an average or yeah. are they bringing, why would you hire somebody to make your company a little bit worse? Yeah. And that's yeah. a first check that you make. It's not, and it's, just, it's a very unscientific, it's not empirical, but I've asked that in a room full of hiring people and, and it's just been dead silent. I've said, so to we hire her, it starts on Monday, are we going to be better than we were today? Like, you can't hire her. Yeah. That's the answer. But I do agree, and I think it's a tragedy, how many people leave recruitment with a bad taste in their mouth 
feeling as though they failed when actually they could have been good yeah, uh, yeah. and could have done well. And it you know, plays into, we've got to remember that most recruitment companies in the world, 80% of them have less than 10 staff. And often the person running the recruitment company was and is a good recruiter or the two or three founders are good recruiters. They're not actually good leaders necessarily. Yes, and yep. they default back to what they know. That's why so many recruitment, that's one of the reasons so many recruitment companies don't scale. Clearly, one of the ways to scale is hiring good people and training good people. So it is the pivotal, it's the pivotal, I should say, competence for growth and for leverage is developing recruiters. And you should put most of your energy into the first three months to make sure that they have every chance to succeed. And if they don't succeed, well, we can both separate, so to speak, and give it our best shot. But a lot of times people leave because, as you said, they haven't been trained properly. They're given goals. They don't hit those goals. And, and the pendulum sort of swings. And suddenly, the bright-eyed person that everyone thought was going to be a gun is a disaster. And then we justify that and let them go. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. so common. And it unsettles teams. It, it, the retention becomes a problem. It's so, it, it sounds so simple, but it is difficult. I have found it difficult in my career. You're constantly dealing with with people, and everyone's different, and there's no one size fits all, right? So, my oh, final true. question for you, because I always say I'm going to be half an hour, and I always go over half an hour, and I'll be in trouble for that. But why do you think that we don't have more one million pound, one million pound dollar, or the same really pound billers? Because I find it so rare to come across a biller who is that much. There's a lot of kind of 200, 300,000 billers. Why don't, you, why don't we have more 1 million billers? Well, it's interesting. Let's talk about dollars for a minute because it's a true story I'm going to tell you. As I mentioned, I'm on the boards of a lot of recruitment companies and that on the inside. So I'm sitting in the board meetings. I talk to the managers every day. Oh, well, I know what people bill. And before COVID, I reckon there was only one person in those 12 or 16, whatever it is, recruitment companies, it was billing a million dollars. Now that would be amongst, some of those companies are over a hundred staff. So that's several hundred recruiters. I only knew one million dollar biller. Uh, and she was billing more than a million with a, with a support person about 1.5 in, in tip. After COVID, I reckon I could off the top of my head name 20. So mm-hmm. there was a boom in high productivity, but they haven't hit those numbers in 2023 and it's not looking as though they're going to. So the sustainability of being able to do it has dropped off. It was, look, they were good recruiters and they got better, but they did ride the wave of that post-COVID boom. Yeah. So that was interesting. And while the people that are in permanent million-dollar billets, look, in, in this country, a million dollars, I reckon the average is 250 to 300. So a million dollars would be an outstanding achievement. Yeah. I just think it's extraordinarily hard. I also think, and this is what owners are not going to like, but it's true. If someone's billing a lot, we tend to leave them alone. What you need to do with someone who's billing a lot is turn good to great. That's a real leadership skill. We often spend a whole lot of our time on average people trying to get them marginally better. And yet we've got a real gun who's billing 500,000. And we go, like, she's perfect. Let's leave yeah. her alone, whatever yeah. she wants. Get, Give her wine and cake and let her go. And then they I get complacent the too. Absolutely, they do. They also get a bit of prima donna syndrome and there's a whole lot of careers can be rude. I think you should be sitting with that person and saying, we love you. You're doing a brilliant job. 
you're highly skilled in these areas, but have a look at these areas. Yeah. And we yeah. will help you to go to a 600 and then a 700. And then we will maybe invest in a resource or whatever it is. But have a plan for them. Many times they don't. They just, everyone's happy because they're building 500,000. The recruiter's making a lot of money. The company's making fair whack. All good. That person tends to plateau. They start, and then some other recruiter comes along and enhances them and seduces them with some fairly meaningless thing, like an extra base 10, 20,000 trip to Hawaii or whatever. And, and they leave because they see there's no progress where they are. So that's where a lot of work needs to be done. Yes, for, for the dollars. But also for the retention, any recruiter will know that if you ask any candidate why they're looking to leave their current job, a very common answer is, I feel as though I'm not learning any. I've stopped growing. That's the most common answer, yeah. along with money and everything else. But, I, but it's the same with recruiters. So it, the foolish thing to leave a $500,000 person in the corner, put them on a pedestal and say, just keep doing what you're doing. You need to say, good, but you're on stage one of 10. Yes, Let's take you on this journey. Keep dangling the carrot. And also, I think they can get complacent in their earnings. I find that people are more likely to be loyal to their employer if they feel they're learning. I think we underestimate how people feel in themselves when they're learning and how that kind of, don't let me say it, growth mindset and how it kind of feeds their yeah. growth mindset. But oh my gosh, I'm going to be in trouble if I keep asking you questions, not only from you, but probably the studio because I am on a limited time. Okay. But honestly, sure. thank you so much for coming on. Are we going to see you back on LinkedIn anytime soon? And if we are. Sometime this month, probably, I imagine. Awesome. And I'll pack up my blog again. No, but look, it's just on that last point. I, I, in my first book, I've got a chapter called Coaching is Retention, which is exactly what you're saying. It, one of the reasons to coach people is for them to get better and build more. But the main reason is job satisfaction. And the yeah. feeling of growth, because when people, as you just said, when people are growing and learning, that feel as though they're in the right place. So that's important. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm, I'm not sure if I said anything helpful, but I hope so. You uh, always say helpful things. people want more. Yeah, I would say to anyone oh, yeah. before we sign off that if you do get an, a chance to just go onto Amazon to get one of your two books, The Savage Truth or The Savage Way, and also there's The Savage Academy which is a training platform, which I found really helpful. And I love the new stuff that you put on very much aimed at the temp recruiters as well as the perm recruiters. And it's a real yeah. modest, it's a modest price as well. I don't know the latest price. Yeah, look, it is it's, it is a modest price. It's also the tech on it is not the highest level. We're looking to improve it. The content is good, I believe, 100% of it's mine. So I think it's good. I'm actually filming a new module tomorrow on, on a lot on what we talked about here. How to prepare for 24, what what the behavior should be. Look, I I can't remember what it is, but I think it, like it's quarterly. You can dip out after any quarter. There's no locking contracts. We update the informational time. There's, there's over 100 hours of training. So that's the Academy for 30 bucks for one of the books you can get off my website or, or Amazon. The first one, The Savage Truth, is more for leaders. I, would, I wouldn't pigeonhole it like that, but more for leaders than leaders. The other one is very much basically everything I know about being a great recruiter, having learned from better recruiters than me. Yeah. I'm trying to write it all down. I love it. And I love when you talk about the best recruiter you've ever met as well, whom I have added on LinkedIn. He's probably getting stalked now in your absence on LinkedIn. But uh, yeah, <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. And if people are listening okay. to this, obviously they want to buy your book. They want to get onto the Savage Academy. Can they reach out to you? And if so, how should they reach out to you? Well, the website is 
gregsavage.com.au and that's where you'll find the academy and the books and hundreds of articles and a lot of podcasts. I'll be back on LinkedIn in January sometime and yeah, we'll be for most of the year, I imagine, unless I'm trying to take another holiday. And they can contact me through there. And I believe with every inquiry I get on LinkedIn, as long as it's vaguely civil, I will respond. Um, so I, I do my best Happen to answer everybody as Happen best what I can. You wish for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But yeah. thank you very much. And I hope you managed to get some rest. And yeah, looking yeah. forward to okay. uh, seeing you again. Thank you very much. Okay. And then we will have that glass of wine in Dubai one day. Is that where you we are? We shall. We shall. Please come to Dubai. Someone in Dubai, come book Greg Savage to speak as a keynote speaker. And uh, <laughs> then, then I can have him for a glass of wine. I'd love that. <laughs> thank thank you. you very much. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you liked it, please leave us a five-star review. We continually try to get the top billers in the world of recruitment to help you increase your billings, be a top commission earner, and most importantly, live your most rewarding life. You can find out about new roles on my Instagram, at Susanna Chime Search, and you can find me on LinkedIn or join the Chime Searches page to get all of the latest recruitment updates and tips. Thank you for listening.